Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host today, Will Button, and joining me in the studio, as usual, our co-host, Jonathan Hall. Hey, hey, hey. Live from the Neverlands. And today, our special guest, Omar Hammerman. How are you, Omar? Hello. How are you guys? Doing well. So today, we're going to be talking about Cost optimization, which um, given how 2023 has started off, seems to be a pretty hot topic for everyone. So before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about your background and what you do, Amir. Okay, so um, at Sesti, I'm a principal engineer, mainly in the, well, we're a DevOps company, quote unquote. Uh, but I do DevOps again, quote unquote, in the company. Uh, <laughs> before Zesty, uh, I used to be a DevOps consultant for something like six years. Uh, so I got to see lots of companies, all different sizes, use cases, uh, deployment scales, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I wanted to be part of a team and do something not exactly of my own, but be part of something. And I found my nice place at Zesty. Um, that's it. Right on. I can totally relate to that because I, prior to joining Polygon, I was a DevOps consultant on my own. And there's just something cool about working with a team of people with similar skill sets. It seems like you, um, it seems like the, the things you're able to accomplish increase exponentially with a team rather than incrementally, I, I think. Definitely, definitely. And in terms of experience, it's it's an amazing bootcamp. Uh, but at some point, you just feel you're constantly being the uh, the external part of other teams. And I wanted to be part of it. It's, it's something that I guess, you, you know, uh, I, how the saying goes, the neighbor's grass is always greener. So I've always wanted to have what everyone already what the vast majority of engineers have but i didn't i didn't want to be a consultant i want to be part of it uh, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah for sure because as the as a consultant you're always um you're like the friend of the friend at the party you weren't exactly. invited directly <laughs> you just got to go because you knew someone i'm, I'm taking that thank you <laughs> that'll <laughs> help right. me explain that in the future yes <laughs> cool so let's talk about cost optimization how do you approach that All right all right, <laughs> uh, big topic. So yeah. uh, obviously there are, there are lots of approaches. Uh, everything we're going to talk about today, my experience is mainly around AWS, but I believe everything we talk about can be taken to um, any cloud provider and pretty much to, well, that's the biggest debate in the world, I think, whether do you want to be part of the cloud or take things uh, on-premise by your own servers or maybe do some kind of a hybrid hybrid deployment. Uh, that's not what I'm doing, uh, but it's a debate and it's it must be said. Um, and the way we approach it, we try to structure a plan to begin with. So, uh, well, I need to say that even to begin with. Zesty, that, that, that's what we do. Uh, we have a line of products. We help our customers save money, run uh, the resources as efficient as possible on different cloud platforms. Uh, that's what we do. Uh, but internally, 
other than dog fooding our own products and using them to save money, whether that's uh, using um, reserved instances on AWS, buying saving plans uh, to plan our future and get the uh, uh, the saved costs that you can get by planning ahead uh, and committing to the future, whether to one year or three years. Um, so we do that. And then another area we specialize at is uh, handling storage. On AWS, that's mainly block storage, as in EBS volumes. And what we can do or what we do for our customers is kind of install different, uh, we call them eyes. It's agents, basically, that can see the storage, understand whether that's um, reading and writing too fast, too quickly, uh, understand the trends, and being able to dynamically uh, shrink and extend them so that you can save money whether if you're over-provisioned. And on the other end, uh, we all know how systems tend to uh, clog because of huge data or log files or everything around that. And instead of going to downtime, uh, it'll help you just um, stay alive by increasing your storage. Um, obviously, that's just uh, the tip of the iceberg as far as, uh, as, as cost reduction go. You can go to, well, to begin with, with I'm going back to RIs, reserved instances. You can make a lot of commitments and a lot of plans as part of your um, cloud resources. If we're, again, going back to AWS, uh, you can talk about RDS instances, Elasticash. There are many ways you can commit to the future uh, by yourself saving plans or reserved instances and make sure you uh, make the most out of the, uh, the discounts that you can get. Um, and other tiers I can think of, um, S3, for example, you can have the uh, uh, the automated tiering that they now offer or do it on your own and make sure that things that are less, I forgot the term, but uh, data that you're not reaching as often can be reduced to a lower tier. Um, and we try to do that uh, kind of method with many other systems, for example, Elasticsearch, which we use a lot. There's a way to manage policies, uh, rotate your data, um, make sure you have these different tiers. There's a, a different data tiers that if that's infrequent access, that's the term I was looking for, uh, and you're not reaching a lot, you can cut down the replicas the data have, um, et cetera, et cetera. I can think of a lot more, but these are just the basics. Yeah, I had a, um, a few years ago, I... Uh had a surprise addition to our AWS bill of about $50,000 because of an S3 bucket. Um, we, the company I was working for, we had uh, music licensing contracts with the major music labels in the world. And part of their integration process is you have to download our entire catalog. So we had, we were using a very specific type of music, but the way that their policies were written, they're like, you got to consume it all. So we ended up downloading every piece of music ever recorded from every record label. Wow. <laughs> and um, someone who will just, we'll just leave them as an anonymous person for the sake of this conversation forgot to turn on infrequent access and send that stuff to Glacier and until the following month when we got the AWS bill. That's incredible. <laughs> and Glacier is also, that can also be a double-edged sword uh, because you can trans 
transfer your things to Glacier, but I, I don't remember the exact year, but if you try to pull them at something sooner than three months, I think, then you're getting uh, kind of a penalty for doing that. And then you don't know how did you actually increase your costs <laughs> instead of reducing them, accessing that. Uh, yeah, so you really need to know your stuff on, on, uh, on AWS. And that actually, um, something that we try to tell our customers or think of internally is how do we take this uh, cloud experience, quote unquote, and turn it into something a little bit more autonomous? And what tools can you use or utilize or leverage to turn that experience of yours um, as easy as an, as an, and as smooth as possible? Uh, it goes to Kubernetes clusters, ECS clusters, running instances. Everything is very tends to be very manual. And if you don't know your stuff, like the example that you just gave, uh, you tend to lose a lot of money. And, and that's sometimes it, it can it can get very sad. <laughs> I have You're a right. lot of examples. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very niche stuff like uh, NAT gateways starting to to rise uh, to two or 10x in their price. Uh, same goes for things you never you never thought of, like uh, CloudTrail, Athena. Um, yeah. Also, all sorts of surprises. Yes. For sure. Those are the, I think, um, from my experience, like the big three are EC2 instances, EBS volumes, and S3. But then, and, and I think those are pretty easy to manage if you dedicate the time to it. And that's where you can get the big wins and the big savings. But then after that, yeah, things like CloudTrail, like you'll be in an AWS console and say, wow, I wish I could see what's going on here. And then there's a little pop up that says, hey, turn on CloudTrail. And you're like, ah, oh, sweet. And then a couple months later, you get hit with this bill and you're like, dang, dude, that would have been cool to include in the pop up notification, too. <laughs> so so here's a recent example. Uh, I went through what you just said and then uh a few of our engineers said, okay, we've got this Athena thing, and that's incredible. And now CloudTrail have released something called uh, Cloud Lake or Trail Lake or something like that, that you don't have to use Athena. You can just uh, duplicate the data and, and run SQL queries on that. And then they started another trail and another trail. And apparently, if you log uh, duplicates events, management events on Amazon, you're billed twice on each one. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yes, we had the first log. But then we said, okay, cool. You can launch another another log trail here and then query that and that'll be really nice and helpful. And what they didn't include in the pop-up is what I just said and we found ourselves paying something like $7,000 uh, for two weeks of usage on, on another two trails. So yes, tons of surprises and that always gets back to understand what you're doing and, and read the pricing tab as closely as possible. Yeah, as best you can because AWS pricing is... Um... It's an odd strategy. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Yes. Yeah, right. And without burning any bridges, let's hope that this exactly. episode isn't sponsored by AWS or <laughs> this is going to be a really short yeah, podcast. Even if it was, it's not anymore, I guess. After that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about um, like some specific uh, tactics for anyone listening. They They know that they need to do something with their bill because that's the state of um, the state of the environment that we're in in this early part of 2023. What's the first thing that you recommend they look at? Um, so um, the easiest 
thing to do and probably the smartest thing to do would, would be start looking at your bill. Uh, AWS do a great work by trying to um, being as transparent as you can, as they can with the bill. So that's structured and you can filter that based on different services and regions and understand really what you're paying for. Uh, but you have to look at that closely. And what I'm saying here is actually doing manual work, but there's no way around it. You have to start by doing that. And you can probably learn a little bit about the cost explorer and that'll help you gain more uh, visibility into what's going on and understand different trends. And maybe, again, like the examples we mentioned uh, earlier, maybe someone's doing something there shouldn't. Maybe there's an excessive uh, permissions somewhere that helps people spend money more than they should. Uh, so I'd start doing that. I'd start looking closely at the bill and understanding, getting an understanding of what's going on in the system. And then once you've done that, you can pl probably utilize things like uh, CloudTrail and the Cloud Lake to help you actually run different queries and understanding even further what's going on. As an example, uh, the NAT gateway that we mentioned, it's hard to understand where things go. So if you run queries, you can actually understand different parts in the system that are running maybe too many queries, maybe are doing uh, overload of work, maybe are accessing public endpoints where they shouldn't, stuff like that. So I'd start with that. Um, taking that a step further, um, you can use automated tooling. It doesn't have to be us. I mean, I'm just saying that. I work in a commercial <laughs> company. That's what we do. Uh, but if you you're can looking go for to a recommendation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're looking for a recommendation, that'll be great. Uh, I do suggest you go on GitHub and look for cost optimization. It's probably better terms, but uh, GitHub has this um, different categories. And you'll find all sorts of open source stuff uh, from CNCF and not from CNCF. Lots of great tooling that you can install either in your Kubernetes clusters. Maybe it's tooling that you can just run against your cloud platform and understand what's going on, getting reports, stuff like that. Um, at the end of the day, all of that is manual work. Some of it can probably be installed and, and is a long running workload. For example, I think KubeCost or I, I forgot the specific names, but you can install like stuff services that will constantly run and, and measure your cloud performance or your cluster performance and help you gain, again, visibility on where you spend, where you can save. Um, but you have to do some work, maybe uh, build stuff around it on your own. Uh, I'd start with that. Right on, yeah. For me, the thing that um, I think has been helpful, like you're doing that manual work and then the thing that I've always encountered with every company I've worked for is you identify the stuff that's running and you're like, wow, that seems kind of high. But then you don't know what that thing does or who built it or where it came from. And that kind of pushes me towards a really... Um, strict tagging policy That's so that point. you can, yeah, so you can start breaking things down, not only in the cost explorer, breaking things down by tag to see the teams that own them. But whenever you stumble across this thing, you can get an idea of who should I talk to before turning this off? Mm -hmm. Who is the owner here? Who did yeah. that? <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, very much so. And another thing that comes to mind when you just said that is uh, lots of times we will find the tagging and we will understand what's going on if I'm going back to the um, NAT instance, for example, or a NAT gateway. That's something that you install on your private subnets for them to gain access to the public internet. 
Um, and then you see that the costs go way too high. And maybe your first reaction can be, oh, maybe we take that down, not actually use a service, install that on an EC2, build our own gateway as it used to be on Amazon. That was the only option. And that will save us some costs. Uh, there's a hidden cost in, in cloud architecture, which is engineering times, engineering time and hours and salaries. And I, I don't think people acknowledge or managers acknowledge that enough. You pay salaries. And you pay salaries for people to work and innovate and develop tooling around what you're doing, obviously create some kind of build automation and basically improve your infrastructure and improve your workloads and help you deliver your product. And if they'll be constantly um, working on stuff that can be mostly managed, maybe it's not the best decision, even if you save $100, $200, $1,000 a month. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying consider that consider the, this idea. When something isn't managed, it not not only needs to be built, it needs to be maintained and monitored and backed up. So obviously, a NAT gateway is, a, is an easy example. Take that to databases. If you're not using RDS because that's expensive and you'd start using your own MySQL instance, you'd have to patch it and update it and rotate it and, and monitor and backup and snapshot, et cetera, et cetera. So... Yeah, because all of those costs do add up. Um, even if you choose not to do it, if you choose not to update on a regular basis, um, you're not getting out of that cost. You're just delaying it to a future date whenever it will. Yeah. It will, it will like present itself to be for that bill to be paid, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and again, if your only lens is the AWS bill and you will get rid of your RDS for an EC2 instance, you obviously your, your bill will shrink. But I think it requires looking at the bigger picture and understanding that there are engineering hours invested into doing that workload. And, and a lot of times people tend to look through this lens of a budget. So if I'm part of the R&D department, I'm only looking through the lens of that budget. And I don't care about salaries because that's maybe HR or finance, right? right um, that's somebody else's problem. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And 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 we smile here and we joke about it, but I I've seen it happen sometimes, especially while being a consultant. And it's a little bit sad to see because at the end of the day, we're we're the same team, same company. We we try to deliver the same product, and we're doing that for the company to succeed and make money, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. That's one of the um, rules that we have over at Polygon is um, we're only going to spend time and resources engineering things that are unique to the thing we do for a living. If it's a commodity thing, then we're just going to buy it from the experts for that commodity. So I, I really tried to follow that buy versus build. And sometimes that's even hard. Well, what, not even I, guess that would be straightforward. It's hard to explain to founders and C-level managers because they want to reduce the cost and they yeah. look through specific lenses. Um, so something I do try to use a lot. Uh, utilize as many services as I can uh, for many reasons, not only for, for costs and for that. I mean, it patches up security issues, networking issues. They can probably utilize better. Uh, I mean, it's their thing. Right, it's not our core product to build databases or manage them. It's not our core business to run uh, servers and handle them. In 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 some ways, it is, uh, but mostly you want to kind of outsource what's not your core business. That's what I believe. Yeah, agree. Jonathan, what do you think? Build versus buy. 
Because you're you're a pretty heavy duty builder. Yeah. Yeah. Can I build it? Yes, I can. (laughs) 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 No, I I actually, whenever possible, I like to buy. Uh, I mean, I I work with a lot of small companies where it usually just doesn't make sense to build something on your own. Uh, You know, of course, because of what it is, you you want to build your core product, generally speaking. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate of outsourcing anything possible. And, you know, kind of my rule of thumb is until you're spending at least a quarter of a person's salary or maybe half on a tool, don't build it or, or, or don't even manage it yourself. You know, let's talk about you know, managing something simple like GitLab. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can you can run that yourself, uh, you know, maybe in the cloud. Right. I'm not talking about, you know, in, in your server, you know, in your server closet. But, you know, you could also hire GitLab to do that. And it's almost always cheaper in the long run to hire a GitLab or exactly. someone else to do and that because it would be rather easy rather easy to install it on your own right it is i've done but it what happens in the day that that thing is down nobody's well working. <laughs> that, that that's a thing but it, honestly the bigger thing is that when you have it installed on your own uh on your own aws instance or whatever then you're responsible for security updates which happen all the time or 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 even not even security updates just general updates yeah now, GitLab puts out new stuff every few months and unless you're happy using the old stuff from six years ago, you you want to keep up to date with that. And uh, it's that, that's that's a lot of toil. And I mean, I, w- I was responsible for doing that at a previous company. That's why this this example comes to mind. And it was a huge waste of time uh, for me and and others to be managing GitLab when we could hire somebody. I mean, literally, we, we I think we got we hired GitLabHost.com or or something like that for two hundred bucks a month. You know, that's that's two. Two engineering hours, less than that, really, when you consider benefits and, and other, all the other mm-hmm. costs of hiring somebody. So, you know, unless we're spending less than an hour a month doing that, we're throwing money on the toilet. And we were spending a lot more than an hour a month, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so hard to explain, so hard, so hard to show and present people that that's what they're doing. But yes, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I can I can take it to another level and speak about Kubernetes a little bit because <laughs> oh, let's you have do to it. mention Kubernetes Everybody, at some point, right? <laughs> you can't go through one hour speaking about infrastructure without mentioning Kubernetes. Well, uh, if we did, they would they would fire us as the co-hosts of the yeah, podcast. Right. <laughs> Why does I call this Adventures in Kubernetes? <laughs> um, so one thing. Uh, we kind of saw along the way that, uh, well, Kubernetes helps us all. It's, it's not, it, it has a good reason for being uh, that successful. And that's for how well it utilizes containers and being able to orchestrate them and manage different, uh, you know, taking the nodes liability onto its own and having something manage it all for you. Again, quote unquote, you have to work a lot to make it happen, even if you are using a service like EKS or AKS or GKE. Um, but still a lot of the work that we used to have as engineers with all the wiring and networking and security management, everything kind of is kind of offloaded onto the cluster as long as you know how to use it. Um, but then we are starting to see another issue where we kind of offloaded so much onto the cluster that we tend to forget about resource utilization. And when I say that, I mean, uh, are we using the best nodes we can? Uh, is the resource allocated? Are the, I mean the resource different resources allocated to different pods? Is it on the best threshold? Is it on the sweet spot? Are we over provisioning? Um, I'll take that again to 
storage, which is even you're kind of adding another layer of, of abstraction because when you have just EBS volumes, it's easy to see. Um, on Kubernetes, that's turning into v, uh, PVCs. And then it's not harder to see, but you do need to have something in place monitoring that, be that Prometheus or, or whatever other type of monitoring system, but you need to take a look at it and understand whether you're uh, utilizing your resource or not. And we as a company, we look at our customers and we see that just that just isn't the case. The vast majority of customers don't really care or aren't really aware of what's going on, especially when it comes to storage, but also when it comes to uh, pods and containers, resource utilization. So that's another point to think of. And I'd say you first want to at least first have a monitoring system, just see what's going on, have the visibility so that when you're asked, you can provide answers and, and shows the managers or the engineers running it what's going on. Or even, you know, engineers, developers, they want to know why their application is failing. Maybe find a memory leak, maybe understand why the CPU is failing to run their application. So at least having monitoring in place, that's the base level. And then from there, maybe you can apply some tooling to dynamically change the resources. Uh, we talked about uh, elastic storage management, like we provide things like that. Uh, so that's, that's another... Uh, huge money peaked uh, where companies tend to lose money and then pay a lot of cash without actually understanding why. So when it comes to that, do you have a preference as far as one large Kubernetes cluster to handle everything? Or do you have Kubernetes clusters that are dedicated to different um, like teams or environments or segments segment in some way? Uh, that's a good question, a good approach question. Uh, I think my approach, it, it's a hybrid answer and a hybrid <laughs> solution. Uh, when it comes to environments, I do try to separate things uh, in all levels, not only in Kubernetes. Uh, even when it comes to AWS accounts, uh, just because of the blast radius and the potential harm that people can do, even me, yeah. right? Uh, we tend to run processes that can be really harmful daily. And when you when you create the segmentation, you're you're kind of uh, removing part of the risk. It's easier to avoid issues and to create uh, human errors. And actually, when it comes to segmenting applications and stuff that are kind of encapsulated within the same environment, I tend to, at least in the Kubernetes context, I tend to go for uh, namespaces and that kind of separation. Obviously, this comes with RBAC rules that uh, segment the access that different teams or groups have to different resources on the cluster and their permissions to do stuff. Um, that's kind of how we manage stuff. Right on. Yeah. I, I like the Kubernetes RBAC model a lot. It's of all the different permission systems I've worked with throughout my career. I think that um, Kubernetes, it's actually reasonable. Like you can read it and understand it and implement it and have a fairly high level of confidence that the rules are being followed the way you think that they're being followed. Yeah, definitely. I, I wasn't a big fan uh, to begin with. Uh, only when I got to really understand it, uh, I can only agree. Um, yeah, but it has to come with that. In, in many, many places, while being a consultant and now with customers, I see that people just neglect to manage that completely. Uh, right. and, and, Run everything in default. 
everything is just <laughs> star star and then just go ahead and do whatever you want and just there's a long list of users that can access the cluster but it ends there right and with no segmentation that would actually force you to create a lot of clusters and if we were if we're talking about cost reduction cost allocation what happens when you manage a lot of clusters at least if you're consuming it as a service you're paying like you're built by the hour i think at least with uh, eks and aks uh, so that's another thing to consider. Just if you can, you can manage one large cluster as long as you're managing the access correctly. And by the way, the, the larger the cluster gets, I guess it gets more efficient because if you're running two applications on, well, you shouldn't run two applications on a Kubernetes cluster, but if you are, it's not as efficient as running 200 or 2000 pods. Uh, I think as it grows, the efficiency grows with it. And so yeah, on. for sure. For sure, because you can just um, like there's a there's just economies of scale. Yes. Mm -hmm. exactly. So you mentioned something. I, it's outside of Kubernetes, but it's a really solid point. I want to bring up for cost tracking. Um, you mentioned segmenting AWS accounts, and I think that's an underrated feature of AWS is using control tower and having separate yeah. AWS accounts for dev and staging and production. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so that's, again, the, the term I always have in the back of my mind is blast radius. And the way we work with AWS credentials, like we, I mean, all of us, that's the way it's built. Whether you're running AWS CLI locally or one, you know, working with Boto3, you have to kind of provide the certain, um, certain combination of credentials and that those credentials are kind of bound to a region and an account and you're limiting yourself by design to work against a certain workload and then it's kind of hard to make mistakes it's harder to make mistakes right i tried to keep it as visible as possible i mean i have a plugin on my cli that when i run against a specific uh, set of credentials in a region it's highlighted in bright orange that i can understand what i'm working against because if I'm running, you know, deleting a bucket or, um, I don't know, a Route 53 hosted zone, and I'm doing that in production, I want to understand that exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, I want to know the environment I'm working against. And if you have everything works working on the same account, you need to be far more uh, diligent with the uh, exact values that you provide. And you need to be a lot more careful and it's easier to make mistakes. So, um I have a nice story about that. <laughs> when I used to work as a consultant, it was, I think, seven years ago, we had this Jenkins cluster that used to manage everything. We had separations of accounts, but this Jenkins cluster had access to everything. Mm -hmm. And we had a nightly job that deletes CloudFormation stacks. And one of the engineers just ran it, and he didn't provide uh, what to delete in terms of the environment. And then this, I don't know, script was designed in a way that if it doesn't have an input, it just uses star. <laughs> and this thing that started deleting stacks all over the place. We, we did have like 15 or 16 accounts, but they were all starting to delete themselves. And it was stopped midway. <laughs> but you can imagine the blast radius of that and, and how much we had to work to rebuild everything. And when you have different, even uh, CI, um, CI servers or systems that uh, serve a certain environment, we try to duplicate everything, even though it's harder, right? Secret management, CI management, CI runners, everything around that, it's it, it's kind of hard. And you 
don't really want to do the work because you have one thing that works. Why won't why won't I just peer everything together and let that do uh, its thing? And that where blast radius comes in. You can make your errors and you can even you can feel more confident in making mistakes and failing faster when you know you're kind of uh, segmented in this way and you're kind of uh, your bounds are very limited. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's like having um, well, it's just like having a set of guardrails in place. You know, you can go a little bit faster because if you lose control, you're going to hit the guardrails rather than careening off the cliff. Very much so. Yes. Or as they say, your ability to go fast depends on how good your brakes are. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, basically a braking system. Yes. <laughs> um, and and I also wanted to add that it, it's it feels like we as DevOps or ops engineers, we do that to protect developers. That's not only developers, it's it's ourselves, right? We're doing so much work and we are the ones that usually utilize the, the admin credentials and we can do anything up to deleting an AWS account. So I'm kind of protecting me in the process just as well. It's not only developers and other engineers. Um, it's a process that helps everyone. So that's how I feel confident working. So, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this before. You've probably talked about it before. But DHH made a big deal about leaving the hmm. cloud recently to save yeah. money. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you've read his his post on that. You know, he, I don't remember the numbers, but he he made these some pretty outrageous claims about how much money they're saving by doing that. What's your take? Oof. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, if, it, if it because... helps, he's probably never going to listen to this podcast. So. Oh yeah, that helps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that because I had a similar take. Uh, Back like five, six years ago, and I stood on a stage in Tel Aviv, and I said something about um, the cloud versus uh, running on-prem. And there were two huge companies sponsoring the <laughs> the event, which <laughs> they weren't a big fan. Let's just uh, say that. And uh, yeah, it got a little heated. But anyway, <laughs> it brings me back to the uh, um, the hidden costs of engineering hours. I think, yeah, great. Of course, you can save money by removing yourself from the cloud and deploying your stuff on physical servers that you have in a rack somewhere, and maybe in the offices, maybe in a shared space. Um, there are a few issues with that. First of all, you need to have the in-house skills to manage that, which is not very common today, I think. Uh, I only see cloud engineers coming to interviews. I don't know whether that's a, a bias I have because that's who we interview. But I don't meet a lot of, you know, the uh, old operations guys managing physical servers in the uh, in the storage house. Um, so you need to have the in-house uh, skill, not only now, but also in the future. So it probably comes with a lot of education and, and building, structuring teams inside. That's for one. And the next is I always ask the question, okay, but what about scale? So part of your scale, of course, you can anticipate. What happens with the parts you can't? And then one uh, valid answer can be, okay, I don't buy the 100% I need in my physical rack in the warehouse or in the basement. I buy, I don't know, 50% more. And I say, okay, so you're actually paying for that to begin with. So you, you are trying to anticipate something, which you're not really, you don't really know what. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. And I read his post and I still couldn't get my head, my head sorry, around around the idea. How do you make those calculations? Fine, uh, you made the bottom line uh, you made the math and it makes sense for you to move away. Uh, but how do you anticipate the scale? How do you know what spikes are coming? How do you know if you're going to have this 
especially for start- startups, right? You can, we can sign a deal tomorrow that triples our workload or, or we get a 10x traffic. I cannot live with a rack in the basement that, to handle that because I don't know how much to purchase. Maybe at the size of DHH's company, it works. Uh, I, I guess for startups, that's very much not the case, at least nine out of mm-hmm. 10 times. Uh, it's a good question. I, yeah, I tend I, to agree. I mean, I, I, my, my biggest complaint about his his post wasn't even the content of the post. It was more the way people interpret it. And I, I think some of that might be his sort of cult of personality that surrounds him that, you know, people read him and they and they think, oh, I have to do what he does. You know, the sort of, for, you're for not Google reason. syndrome. I mean, he has his, <laughs> for a very good reason, but still. Uh, yeah. But, you know, what, what he said, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give him the complete benefit of the doubt that it makes sense for his company, but it doesn't make sense for most companies, or, or at least not all companies, you know, maybe maybe some. Um, I'm, I'm still not convinced that it, I mean, when you when I look at the numbers, like those numbers don't quite add up to me. Like I didn't see him talking anything about the salaries of the people managing his servers. I heard him talk about equipment cost yeah. and bandwidth cost, and that was it. Like I didn't see anything about people managing those servers or replacing them when they when the hard drives crash and you know all those sorts of things. So it, it's it's cold math, and and that's yeah. <laughs> it's hard. There are different aspects. Even just my engineering brain told me, okay, what if I want to create some type of automation, right? I'm building now. I'm literally these days building a product to support storage on top of Kubernetes uh, and Kubernetes in the cloud, because obviously I have to speak to AWS's cloud with their APIs and the SDKs for all sorts of different languages. What happens if it's you know on-prem resources, on-prem system? Do I need to start speaking to that? Will it be good as AWS's or Microsoft's or Google's? Probably not. I don't know. Uh, it feels like I wouldn't want to be part of the team. And if I would, it would be for uh, high salaries reasons, which I don't know if these are even scalable. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the, um, the big takeaway I got from it as well. As his logic seemed to be very specific to his exact business and was not something that could be broadly applied to tech companies in general. And then the other part, I just had um, flashbacks to driving out to the data center at two o'clock in the morning and grabbing my coat and going in there and pulling servers and popping those tiles and crawling under the floors. And (laughs) it's like, dang, did he talk with his... uh, with his team before signing them up for that. I mean, just, I mean that's assuming the, that they even live near wherever their data center yeah. is. And and just think of the ops engineers, right? You're, you used to work with AWS for what, five, six, seven, eight years. And then uh, C-Level uh, gets you into a meeting and they say, okay, we're going off the cloud. I think the first place I go is LinkedIn <laughs> to look for another job. <laughs> I'm not even thinking about it. That's not an option. Uh, and these are the type of engineers that wouldn't have this much problem to find a new job. So what are you doing? How are you um, <clears throat> harnessing them into this uh, adventurous project? I don't have yeah. the answer. The first thing I wanted to do is to ask the engineers, kind of hearing their standpoint. I don't know. Yeah, because for me, that's a long forgotten skill set, like the skill set of building out a, a SAN array and, and putting in the monitoring in place to identify failed disks and having an appropriate number of redundant disks online. Like I ditched those skills years and years ago. 
Yeah. Well, and what yeah. about the physical skills, right? IT engineers used to be those uh, people that fix wiring and electricity and ventilation. What happens to them? T today, I think they mostly deal with managing, you know, Google directories and, and fixing physical stuff or hardware within the office. Uh, what happens to those skill sets? It's a good question. I, I built my, my desktop computer a couple of years ago. I built a new one. And it was such an ex a weird experience. I used to build computers all the time, right? You know, I mean, that, that, back in the late 90s, that, mm -hmm. was, that was the thing, you know? Yeah. Oh, look, I built a Pentium 2, and now you know, I'm going to upgrade the RAM to, to 32 gigs mm -hmm. or whatever it was mm -hmm. back then. I don't remember it even anymore. Um, everything's changed. Power supply. The power supply has changed. My goodness. And not just the connectors, but like the power supply technology. I have a fanless power supply that I don't think that existed back then. And, and memory has changed. And, and it, your hard drive snaps into your motherboard these days. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if I was going to do this at the servers, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't even, I don't know what it would look like. I literally yeah. don't know what I would yeah. expect to see. Mm -hmm. I'm used to those, you know, SCSI disk raid arrays and so on. You know, I've, I've, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure those still exist somewhere, but what is this? What? How do you install thirty different uh, SSDs? I don't even know what that looks like. I have no idea what it looks like. So yeah, I, I, I'm sure I could learn it again. But it's it's a completely different skill set. Be, I might as well be learning how to use DOS all over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and there are aspects we, we're not even thinking about. What about physical security? Uh, oh, the yeah. type of access that AWS have on top of their warehouses is, is unbelievable. I mean, uh, it, it's tiered and leveled in so many ways. I think the gatekeeper doesn't even know how to enter the main road, and that guy doesn't know the key to the. Uh, to the warehouse door, and that guy doesn't know how to turn off the ventilation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are you going to do? Keep the rack in the basement? I mean, sure you can, but it wouldn't be as good as the largest cloud in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's <laughs> a lot of questions to ask, and it feels like it's going kind of against the current, which is understandable if it makes sense to you, uh, but it feels like the world is kind of shifting towards the cloud. And it's a slow shift, but but it feels like that's the general direction. And doing the opposite probably has a lot of more aspects we're not even thinking of. Uh, you know, recruiting um, recruiting people using tooling. I mean, GitHub is is exponentially growing with tooling around the cloud. I'm assuming not uh, around proprietary systems that manage on-prem resources. So those are. A lot of questions to ask the AJH. <laughs> I've been reading uh, the book Learning Wardley Mapping uh, by Simon Wardley. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept, but it's basically a way to map a value stream against, this is really an oversimplification, but a way to map a value stream over, uh, it's a two-dimensional map. So you have like the customer is at the top of the map and whatever is at the farthest away from the customer is the bottom of the map. And then, and then the x-axis is the, sort of the maturity of the thing. Mm -hmm. So if, you're, if your value stream is a cup of coffee, then the top is uh, you know, uh, the person buying the coffee. Right below that is the barista at Starbucks. And then you have the coffee machine and the coffee grinder. And then near the bottom, you have the farmers uh, growing the coffee somewhere in, in Ecuador or whatever. And, and um, Generally, at the bottom of the map, you have things that are commodities, and, and they're, so they're far to the right. So, you know, the electricity to, to power your data center mm -hmm. is a commodity, and it's, all, you know, it's clear and far to the right. You, you, you don't care who you buy it from. The only differentiator between one provider and another usually is the price. 
Um, nowadays, some are, you know, you can get, you know, is it renewable or not? Depending on where you live, you might have that option. But that, that's the only dis- differentiator, right? Um, and then the farther up the chain you go, depending on, you know, different things, some things are, are like they're highly experimental. They're far on the left. And like, we don't even know if this works yet or what it looks like. We're going to we're going to try something and see what it works. And then, uh, once you do that, it starts to move to the right. And one of the examples he uses throughout the book is uh, cloud computing. And when he's when he started coming up with this process of, of mapping, it was back in the mid two thousand like two thousand five, two thousand seven, something like mm-hmm. that. When cloud computing was you know just sort of people were thinking about it. It hadn't yeah. like AWS hadn't really been announced yet when he started doing this. Yeah, I think it was just S three in two thousand six or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so but, you know, he's talking all you know, the whole book using cloud computing as, as an example of commoditization and 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 more than that, you know, utilization. You know, making something a utility. And I, I think that um, yeah, that does a good job of explaining, I think, the way that industry has progressed. You know, back in 2000, servers were special. <laughs> we gave them pet names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually named after Star Wars <laughs> yeah. figures or, or Looney Tunes characters. That's a topic of its own, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now, you know, I don't know that this transition is complete. And, and, just because, and even if it is, um, that doesn't mean that everybody's using the cloud. I mean, some people still have their own solar panels and their own even diesel generators or whatever, you know, so even though electricity is definitely utility, doesn't mean that in all circumstances it is. Uh, so, you know, it's appropriate to have your own data centers in some cases or your own server rack if you need something really fast close to your your, your rendering engines or whatever you're doing. Um, but yeah, in general, the the trend seems to be that, that everything's going to the cloud and I and you're you're fighting the trend if you don't. The same way you're fighting the trend if you decide to install your own, um, you know, coal plant in your backyard to to, to build your, you know, to generate your electricity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just thought of of five new things that we didn't even talk about. Which I mean, <laughs> kind of uh, branching out of what we're talking about. But you know, cleaning the place, uh, getting new hardware, getting spare spare parts for our hardware. Um, AC, backup AC, lighting, so many things that we're used to consume as commodity because I'm only launching an EC2. I don't care about all these things around it. And yes, it costs a little bit more, but for, I mean, I'm not trying to promote Amazon or any other cloud provider here, but for a good reason, right? There's so many things that come into that price of the EC2 instance that I'm launching uh, Mm -hmm. that I'm not even thinking of. And I probably don't want to think about, I don't want to clean the space around (laughs) around the server. Someone's doing that for me. So yes, very much so. It is a commodity today. Um, and, and to your analogy with with the pets and and the names for the servers, there's this uh, there's this notion of running uh, kettle versus pets, uh, which is probably translating in our world to running containers versus instances uh, or whatever other workload. It doesn't have to be containers, but it's easier to run immutable things, and it's easier to get rid of certain servers and large new ones where they're larger or smaller or faster or ones with GPU, it's just, like you said, a commodity. And when I'm kind of downgrading, again, quote unquote, because maybe I'm not, but I'm downgrading myself to running uh, from something that is so much elastic and is, again, with a limit, but it's pretty much infinite in, in terms of how much I can I can provision. Um, it, it feels weird. It feels like going against the current and I don't understand it. But it does make for a spicy blog post. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. If you want traffic, that's the way to go. Right. <laughs> well, cool. 
anything else we should talk about for um, cost optimization? Um, or slamming on DHH? <laughs> no, no, no. I think that's enough. <laughs> I want to stay under the radar with this. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I think, again, going back to the basic point, it's it's first, it's most important to understand what's going on uh, in your cloud bill. Uh, there's a good reason why there are so many consultancies out there and consultants that will only come in to help you uh, reduce costs. And I think and some companies, it's even a title. It's a job, like being the, uh, whatever that is, I think it's already a C-level. I forgot, I forgot the term, but it's the one that manages the FinOps, right? The FinOps engineer and a FinOps manager. And uh, maybe there's a FinOps uh, C-level. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point to not necessarily end on, but that's a, a great takeaway. Whenever you look at your bill, it can seem overwhelming and it can look like there's some big wins or it can seem really confusing. So like bring in somebody external who's done this a lot because there's a lot of hidden places where, you know, things may look expensive, but actually that's a reasonable amount or things that look reasonable to you that someone who's done this multiple times may say, no, you're, you're paying way too much for that. So bringing in someone to take a look at it can be a fresh set of eyes to help you gain perspective, especially after those quick wins. Cause for, in my experience, you know, I've always, it seems like I've always looked at the AWS bill and there's been something at the top that's way, way expensive and it's like oh okay well here's a quick win but then like once once you knock that out i think bringing in expert help um can be really effective especially like something we talked about early on but then didn't come back to with the savings plan and the reserved instances those are really really mm -hmm. tricky and um you can you can do them the wrong way where they actually end up hurting you in the long run definitely definitely uh, i think zesty was founded around the understanding that, yes, you can be, bring that professional, but uh, what happens in areas that you need that professional every month or every week? Uh, why don't you utilize something that's installed? Probably costs less than getting that professional and dynamically shifting your infrastructure as you go. And your infrastructure doesn't have to be nodes and pods, although that's something we do. Uh, that's also reserved instances and saving plans and utilizing them, buying them and selling them and having everything running uh, autonomous for you so you don't have to worry about it. And I think that's how the, at least I want to see the future cloud experience. That's what it should look like. It should be as automatic as possible and providing you with all those services that are uh, honestly, from AWS's perspective, are rather easy to develop and provide as a service. I understand it's not their main goal because they want to make money and not save money for customers uh, per se. Um, but I hope at some point, we'll get to a good enough baseline uh, that's easy to work with without managing those uh, hassle tasks running around and trying to understand what's uh, what's popping now in my bill. Yeah. I hope that'll be the future. Right on. Well, should we move on to some picks? Jonathan, have you got a pick for us this week? I do. I'm going to pick the book I just mentioned. Uh, All right. Wardleymaps.com. It's a free book. You can download it in English or Spanish. There's also other resources there. Um, is one of them really how to cool, learn Spanish? I mean, it's a, sorry? Is one of them how to learn Spanish? <laughs> <laughs> Yo no sé. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it, it's a it's a cool book. I'm about halfway through reading it, maybe even less. It's a it's a dense book, and it was originally a bunch of blog posts, each each fairly long. You know, it's a collection of book length blog posts crammed into a book. Um, but it's really fascinating. It's it's a lot more dense than a lot of people are going on to read. But if you're in a management position, especially um, or or like product vision type of position, this is a great resource for you. Um, so I recommend it. And if you don't want to read the whole book, there are other resources there. You can watch videos uh, by, by Simon Wardley, or you can find him interviewed on podcasts. Uh, I, I recommend that just about everybody become at least familiar with the concept of a Wordly map and, and what it does. So that's that's my pick for the week. Right on. What about you, Omar? Got a pick for us? Uh, yeah, two, actually. Uh, right. One is pretty standard. I think uh, Netflix's book, No Rules Rules, which is... Uh, amazing at least to me so many concepts that you would never think about of uh, talent density and how to manage uh, people and how to manage people's approach towards the company and towards an organization how to structure teams um it's an amazing management book and just uh, bring in new concepts you'd probably never thought of uh, so that's a book and another, another cool thing, kind of a niche thing, uh, I need to transcribe a lot of content for many reasons, uh, YouTube, podcasts, stuff like that. And there are many paid resources online, but apparently OpenAI, which are responsible to ChatGPT, have open sourced a tool that's called Whisper. And Whisper is an easy command line tool. It has different models for all sorts of languages, but with English, it has even a different sizes of models. So it's very easy, very fast. And you can just transcribe and it works a lot better than online uh, paid services. And I think most of them are actually trying to adopt it now because it's so far more accurate than the others. Uh, so I highly oh, recommend wow. it to anyone looking for that kind of service. Yes. <laughs> oh, sweet. Definitely going to check that out. Cool. For me, my pick this week is going to be a book. I feel like I've been picking a lot of books lately, but I'm not going to change that today. I just finished reading this book called Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. And it's it's actually a really, really cool story that's like, it's about running, obviously. Big surprise there. <laughs> but it's about this um, tribe in Mexico, Mexico called the Tarahumara, that they stay away from civilization and they're just these mysterious endurance runners and so the whole story was how this guy heard about these people and then went down to mexico trying to find them and was able to find them and he puts together this race down in mexico of like the the top endurance runners from the u.s against this tribe in mexico and the whole story of how how he pulls it off and um how it almost doesn't happen, you know, in the area of Mexico where it is, is like the homelands of the cartel. So they're, you know, <laughs> trying to navigate Mexico without running across the the drug cartels. And it's probably running barefoot too, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It it talks a lot about that. And and that's that was one of the cool aspects of it. I like this style of book because it was um like one chapter would be uh, an entertaining section of this whole story. And then the next chapter would be like an educational component where they talk about mm -hmm. the different, you know, shoes and running techniques and endurance characteristics and then back to the story. And so you just flip back and forth. Oh, that's cool. Where you're entertained and then educated. But the, the story itself is super cool. Very, very entertaining. And um, 
I'm surprised it's not a movie now, but, um, or if it is, let me know and I'll check out the movie too. But uh, Born to Run, it's a really, really good read. So even if you're not a runner, it's just a super cool story about how this guy goes wandering through the Mexican desert to put together this race. All right. I mean, I don't know if it's a movie, but it's a song at least, right? Song? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The boss. All right, cool. Well, I think we have ourselves an episode. Omer, thanks for joining us. It was great to have you on again. And Thank you guys look for having, to having you back again. Yeah, hopefully. All right, cool. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see y'all next week.